This is NFA Talk, the show that talks about guns and gun rights, keeping you up to date with what's currently going on. From the newest guns, promotions, and events, plus how we're lobbying for your rights. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of NFA Talk. I'm Rick Eggersich. I'm here tonight with Charles Zach and Blair Hagen and special guest Leslie Lewis, MP for Haldeman Norfolk. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be speaking to several of the CPC leadership candidates. Uh, Leslin happens to be our first one. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Leslin. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back again. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to go ahead, take the floor, introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you're doing for us. Awesome. So as you said, my name is Leslie Lewis and I am the Member of Parliament for Haldeman Norfolk. I am also a leadership contestant in the for the Conservative leadership for the Conservative Party of Canada. By way of background, I'm a lawyer. I've practiced law for over 20 years. I also had my own law firm. And before um, starting my own law firm, I worked on Bay Street. And when I left Bay Street, I had to practice the area of law that could, that would be the lowest hanging fruit. So for some time, I did practice criminal law. So my background and some of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight are informed by that experience. I've also had experience working in high risk communities with young people who were at risk for getting involved in crime because of the, their communities that they live in. And because oftentimes these young people are preyed upon by gang members and um, people from the, their communities. And so I've had the opportunity of working with some of them to keep them outside of getting into crime. And also for those who unfortunately made a mistake in life, uh, sometimes they were they had to pay restitution or they uh, had a diversion. And so they worked with organizations that I was associated with um, to assist them in just becoming good citizens and um, also paying the price that they paid for whatever criminality they engaged in, but bringing them back into the fold and teaching them how they could really optimize their potential in life and stay away from a life of crime. So my experience and my um, take on firearms is really informed by my life experience. I'm also a mother and, um, and that's very, very important to me because I, I really do believe in public safety. And I want to make sure that the government is implementing laws that are focused on public safety and that they're not really manipulating my concerns as a mother to keep my children safe and to keep other people's children safe, that we're focused on criminals and not on law-abiding firearms owners. So that's some background. I'm sure you're familiar with my educational background. I have a PhD in international law. Um, as I said, I was a lawyer and I also uh, have a master's in environmental studies and I'm currently a member of parliament. So I look forward to taking your questions. I just want to go speak a little bit about what my policies are regarding law-abiding firearms owners. I think the most important aspect of firearm safety 
is really to keep the, the guns out of hands of criminals. And I believe that I'm the best candidate to help the public understand the difference between a law-abiding firearm owner and a criminal and why we need our laws to protect us against criminals and not to protect us against hunters, farmers, and sports shooters. As I said, I'm a mother and I've worked in the area of criminal law and I've worked in high-risk neighborhoods and I want to make sure that these laws protect us and also help future generations in keeping them safe and also helping young people who maybe need in need of government assistance, rather than investing in things such as a buyback program, we can invest in an education program and programs that will help young people. I see. Uh, I see, Leslin. Uh, another one of your qualifications is you uh, graduated from the Can Canadian Firearm Safety Course. You have your PAL license. Well, yes, I did. I uh, did my both my restricted and my non-restricted. I did that. Um, almost a year ago uh, in my community of Dunville at, at the um, firearms club there. And I've also gone for shooting lessons outside of that um, just to keep my, my skills fresh. Awesome. Uh, you guys got any questions for Leslie? Yeah, thank you for that introduction, and, and thank you for being here and being the first conservative leadership candidate to take this opportunity. We really appreciate it. Uh, this is not only a very, very important subject to, uh, for us. I know this is an important subject for the conservative party, for conservative voters across the board, and for you to come here tonight and uh, talk to firearms owners. Uh, this is a, a very great honor for us. Um, you you talk about um, uh, the uh, challenges of uh, youth being uh, di diverted into uh, criminal lifestyles and uh, that sort of thing. Um, that's a challenge at the best of times. And these are not the best of times in Canada. Uh, our economy has great challenges. There's uh, a lot of social upheaval going on. Uh, young people especially have a lot of challenges. And uh, I, I know of what you speak when uh, you say they're being preyed upon uh, to become involved in criminal gangs and that sort of thing. Yet we have a federal government that is spending billions of dollars uh, licensing, registering, monitoring uh, Canadians who want to take part in their right and cultural tradition of firearms ownership. Uh, I, I, you probably understand the scope of these programs. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about where you would like to divert that funding to rather than uh, directed at uh, law-abiding firearms owners. Sure, yeah. We're spending millions of dollars a year on a buyback program that's not efficient. We've seen that programs like that have been disastrous in places like Australia. They just don't work. And we have to recognize that People who want to break the law and use firearms to do that, they're not going to be incentivized to, to, to sell back their firearms, nor are law-abiding firearms owners. These law-abiding firearms owners have acquired their property for their own personal use. And being someone that has gone through the restricted and, and non-restricted firearms course, I know the importance that they put on safety and ensuring that that the 
that you keep your property um, under lock and key in, it's safe out of harm's way and even on handling it and on transporting it. Um, most people don't even know the, the level of intricate details that's required in just for us to take our firearms from our home to to the range. Um, there's a lot of detail and paperwork and your paperwork has to even be in the case that you carried in. So many people don't realize the how much detail goes into that. Um, but essentially, I'm very concerned about the millions that we're spending on a program like the buyback program. When we have young people who are in need of assistance, I think what we need is some sort of national education program that will attempt to focus on these young people and will create programs for them. Um, and many of them were so alienated during uh, COVID lockdown and th there, this alienation could even make them more susceptible and vulnerable to being preyed on because they're looking for a sense of belonging. And I think that they're, I've worked with some of the community programs that they have out there. Some of them are initiated by the police. Many are by community workers. Many are in organizations like Acorn to Oak, which I've worked with in the past, that actually go into prisons and go into schools. And so they work from both ends. So they work before a child is, is um, groomed into a gang and they work for those who've already unfortunately have gone down that path to restore them. And so that's where I want to see the money focused on rather than focusing on people like myself and law abiding firearms owners who are following all the laws, who are compliant, who um, respect the laws. I think that we should focus on, on putting some of that money uh, towards young people. And another area too that I've recognized is really underfunded is the gun smuggling area because attached to that is the human trafficking element. And we see that Indigenous women are four times more likely to be trafficked than and than um, non-Indigenous women. And we don't have enough resources dedicated to that. And the gun smuggling at the borders is largely tied to this human trafficking element. And so if we could also direct some more money towards the border as, and to make sure that we're not getting illegal guns in the country and make sure that those border patrol agents have the resources and the police have the resources to deal with these issues. I think that we will be better served from the area of, of public safety. Okay, you mentioned the... Uh, oh, sorry, oh, excuse Blair. me, Rick. Okay, I was just, I was just uh, reading uh, Leslin's platform. Listen, uh, the, the May 2020 order in council, what are you going to do with that? Well, the Order and Council, Rick, I don't, I don't like the way that it, it was acquired. I really do believe in the separation of powers, the rule of law, and, and that governments have to adhere to that. And when we have an Order and Council that law-abiding firearms owners went to bed law-abiding and then the next day woke up as criminals because of this this change without any notification I, I that's not the the right way to do things i would uh repeal that order in council in addition what i would do is i would look for a means of 
just reassessing a complete um, reassessment of all of the firearms legislations. And that includes even the way things are, are classified. I don't believe that we, the classification system that we're using has really consulted with, with firearms owners, with police, with experts. And I think we need to do that. It shouldn't be just in the hands of, of bureaucrats. I will simplify the classification system so that gun experts, law enforcement, farmers, sports shooters, they're involved instead of just focusing on politicians and bureaucrats um, who, frankly, don't understand um, firearms. And, and that's why many of the classifications are so arbitrary. That's a breath. That's a breath of fresh air, Leslie. Uh, I think Blair has another question for you. Yeah, that's something that's been uh, uh, discussed recently, especially in the uh, the light of liberal legislation. Uh, and I can confirm that uh, in past years, although there has been sort of a nominal uh, uh, in involvement of uh, sports shooters uh, in, in the legislative process, it is not in the development of re uh, regulation or legislation. Uh, we have been shut out of that. And I can confirm that the firearms laws today are, are completely incomprehensible. Uh, I, I'm sure you know this yourself. They they are at a state now where there is just no other way to fix them but to introduce fundamentally new legislation to chart a different course than the one that we have been on for the last 45, 50 years in this country. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the smuggling issue in regards to firearms, and I'm, I'm sure we would all agree that the reason we have a smuggling problem uh, for firearms in Canada is that there is a demand for it. There is a criminal demand for firearms. Uh, how do you see going about addressing that? Well, as, as I said before, that what we need to do is we need to commit and have the, the political will to commit to having the resources to fund our border patrol agents so that they can do the job and they can stop it at the border. What we have right now are, is, is an underfunded unit that doesn't have the resources to deal with that. In addition, when it, when they do make it past the border, we have police officers that are underfunded also under resourced and they don't have the means of, of tracking down those illicit firearms. And so it's, it's really an issue of redirecting especially some of the, that, those funds that have been allocated to the buyback program. But I also wanted to talk about the, um, the reclassification uh, and the fact that I would review the reclassification system because I really want to ask questions about whether firearms should be classified according to their function um, and their use or whether they should be an, uh, function use and their utility or whether they should be um, classified in accordance with their appearance. And what we've seen in, even with the OIC ban, many of the reclassifications are not based on function use utility, they're based on appearance. And so I wanna make sure that we get it right um, because public safety is very, very important. Yeah, that's that uh, statement Krista Freeland uh, made still sticks in my head. I, she some of these guns were banned because they look scary. Yes. Wow. Yeah, wow. Anyway, it, Charles. So great points, Leslin, as usual. And we've talked about this many times before. Um, and it's great. You know, you're, we're looking at the border and we're looking at, uh, you know, proactive ways of helping youth um, not acquire, 
you know, illegal firearms and go down that road. That's great. And this has been going on for decades. Okay, this is nothing new. The government's been contending with this for a long time. What is new is that uh, our so-called public safety policy doesn't seem to be redressing that and continues to focus on the, you know, the responsible gun owners out there. It is impossible for us to to comply with this thumb, the, the the legislation because they keep moving the uh, the goalposts further and further and further away, and the result is not crime control but more um, persecution of the innocent, peaceful, law-abiding uh, gun owners out there. So we've had layers upon layers of really bad gun control legislation. Um, come on to us from both sides of the camps here over the course of the last 25, 30 years. So we're at a point now where we're losing our property. We've lost our, you know, we, we lose our, 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 you know, our, uh, our legal rights, um, our civil rights. Um, we're demonized by the government. And uh, so our, our community is, is not only afraid, but uh, they're looking for more than just solutions to the crime. They're looking for justice and some kind of uh, relief of what's going on. I'm just wondering, maybe you can speak to that. Well, you've touched on a lot of things such as the loss of property and the demonization, um, classification. But I, simply put, I, I believe that our firearms laws should be easy to understand. Um, owners should not face criminal consequences because of simple paperwork and they shouldn't be demonized because they are law-abiding firearms owners. Uh, many of the, the offenses and crimes that law-abiding firearms owners are charged with are what you call victimless crimes. And really and truly, uh, law enforcement is and, and firearms, uh, what, what, what we hear from the government is that they, they're trying to protect public safety, but yet you have all these law-abiding firearms owners charged with uh, administrative offenses. Um, I think we need to really examine our current firearms law to make sure that we're focused on public safety. And you're right. You're absolutely right. We are seeing an erosion of property rights and law-abiding firearms owners have been targeted by this government. And as I said before, you could go to bed one day law-abiding one night and wake up the next morning a criminal. And that's because of the arbitrary changes that we're seeing um, with with classifications, etc. And there, there are a number of things that are making citizens, even non-firearms non owners, very, very concerned because we're seeing that the government is having a arbitrary disrespect for, for property. Even if you look at the recent trucker protest and the fact that uh, certain protesters' properties were, th their bank accounts were frozen um, and their property was confiscated. This is, this is a slow encroachment. We saw this first with the OIC ban, which was just came out of the blue without any due process, without any consultation, without any um, notification. And just overnight, the government could say this property that you've been using safely and that you've had in your family, perhaps even for generations that you've been safely um, 
utilizing, you can no longer do that. And that was arbitrary. It was as arbitrary as the government saying, I'm going to confiscate people, uh, the, the, the property of people or the, the freeze the bank accounts of people who protest because they, I don't like what they are protesting about. So I'm going to cr uh, create all of these reasons, um, use the Emergencies Act and really encroach on people's property rights. That's very scary. We're seeing people actually pack up and leave this country because of that. And so I'm very, very concerned. And another area is, 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 the, is firearms. It's, it's a disrespect of, of your law abiding, uh, of law abiding firearms owners and their property rights and their right to enjoy their property in a safe manner that doesn't infringe on the rights of any other citizen. Yeah. Blair, Blair has a question. Yeah, I'd like to confirm that. Uh, one of the things we do in National Firearms Association is uh, uh, assist firearms owners who have inadvertently run afoul of these laws. And we've been doing this for many, many years now. And uh, frankly, it's, it's, it's past offensive at this point that some people who are facing charges for simple paperwork crimes, uh, administrative crimes, uh, who lo lose licenses, who lose uh, who, who lose property simply because they missed a deadline, uh, they didn't file on time, they didn't answer the correct question, should be targeted in this way. It's been a vexing issue for us for a very long time. And the root cause of this is in the Firearms Act itself. And it has never really been addressed uh, since these type of uh, administrative offenses and regulations got going. My God, what is it? It's probably uh, 25, 30 years ago. So uh, I think what we really need here, as you said, is a simplification of firearms laws so that Canadians can, hey, have a basic understanding of, of, of what they are, uh, the public safety goals, and uh, how they, they can comply uh, with uh, uh, reasonable common sense gun laws that don't infringe on their rights and property. And it's going to take a government uh, that has uh, the, uh, the the legislative uh, initiative to do that. And, uh, you know, we've seen a little bit of that in the past, but uh, I think we're, we're, we're coming to a crunch point on some of this stuff now. And we uh, really, really encourage you, um, should you become leader of the party and prime minister to uh, pursue this uh, issue uh, with focus and, and vigor because we, we are at a point in this country where we're criminalizing the wrong people. Uh, this is wrong and it's got to stop. Yeah. Well, I, I just, just to add to that, Leslie, just to, sorry to interrupt, but uh, uh, if, if, you, uh, if, you, uh, if you achieve the nomination and become Prime Minister of Canada, would you uh, be willing to consult with uh, perhaps a group like ours, the NFA, for uh, some advice on some new policies? Instead well, of just letting the instead of letting the the lawyers and the and the, and the backdoor people do it. <laughs> well, yes, because you're, you're the stakeholders that are directly affected by by these policies. So I think that extensive consultation would have to include organizations like yourself because it's your members that are directly affected. And I've heard from from members of your association, I've heard from law-abiding firearms owners who have told me that even when they are attempting to comply, like they they are going out of their way to find out, well, how do I stay um, 
on the right side of the law. They've even contacted police detachments, contacted police officers, and the officers have said, oh, we don't know. We don't know if this changed. We don't know if, if this gun is, is prohibited. We, 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 like they don't even know. And that's how confusing the laws are. So we have to make sure that um, we get this right and that we have a firearms legislation that furthers public safety and focuses on the right area, which is focusing on criminals. Yeah, uh, Charles. Uh, Charles like would like to uh, redress that. Yeah, I just um, I, I think this is obvious to all our members now, but uh, I just want to reiterate this: that the public safety policy in terms of guns is not about respecting law-abiding gun owners or even trusting citizens with firearms. We see now that over the course of decades now that this is a slow march towards civil disarmament, right? And so we need. We need a government that's going to recognize that, you know, and, and and stop that march towards that end because it's just not right. And it certainly won't help with any kind of uh, crime controls. So, <laughs> there's all kinds of models out there that, you know, show that when you actually prohibit firearms, things actually get even more dangerous. And of course, the black market takes off because, as Blair said, there is a demand. So, you know... On the judicial side, um, like like you're saying before, um, a lot of gun owners that run afoul uh, one way or the other, they are ensnared in the system, and that is, it's it's bad enough to be punished for being a firearms owner, but when you get ensnared in the system, you're punished again, and it's usually usually financially, and uh, you know they'll run out the court cases for years and bankrupt the poor person who's involved, even if they're 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 found innocent, so. That is another channel that needs to be redressed. The legal system has been has been um, skewed somewhat, and it's not providing justice per se. It's it's a way of persecuting people who have the audacity to have firearms now. So I I, I think that's something else. As a lawyer, you under, you I'm sure you understand that we're looking for truth and justice, not some kind of a political you know paddle wagging uh, you know situation when we go to court. So I was just wondering if you'd comment to that. Well, I think you you said it better than I could say it. It's we have to have confidence in the legal system, and we also have to have confidence in our legislative process. And if we say that the purpose of the act is to keep people safe, it should not be. There should not be an underlying uh, intent to frustrate firearms owners. If the government does not want people to own firearms, then they should state why instead of trying to create all of these hurdles and uh, through uh, default create a system where people will not want to own firearms. So we, we do have to look at the, the legislation and we have to ensure that it's meeting the needs of what it is intended to do. And I think that once we are able to um, make sure that we fix that, then it works its way through the courts because then the the justice system, the the judicial actors will have a more robust piece of legislation that they can make their decisions on. But right now, with the ambiguity in it, you, you would have so much room for discretion 
which leads to uncertain outcomes. Yeah. Uh, I, that's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Leslie. Uh, I want to touch on another issue. I've, uh, and I promised these guys I would, I've been getting a bunch of calls from Canada's veterans mm-hmm. and, uh, the veterans, uh, with, uh, with the Trudeau government seems to be a, uh, locked door dead end street for them. Uh, a lot of, a lot of these veterans are firearms owners and, uh, a lot of them, uh, after coming back from, uh, from combat, uh, are having some issues and they're having a hard time uh, getting their licenses, uh, getting their licenses to own firearms or uh, or sh- go on the range and shoot firearms. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I feel that uh, they need, you need to uh, address them. What do you, what do you feel about uh, uh, Canada's veterans? Well, why are they having difficulty? Uh, some of them are coming back uh, and, and they're beating uh, PTSD Right. And, uh, you know, and, uh, the way, the way, uh, the way, uh, the, uh, the bills have changed, uh, the licensing, uh, the background checks used to go back about five years and now it's basically back forever. And a lot of these people are having a hard time getting their licenses again. And they're avid shooters. They're well-trained. You know, these guys are, these guys, uh, these guys uh, know firearms. They know how to do it, but they, they, uh, a lot of them can't get their uh, can't get their uh, can't get their license. And mm-hmm. uh, they they wanted me to ask you if uh, if you have anything in, in store for for Canada's veterans. Well, you know what, I, I would have to meet with them and understand the intricacies of what's going on because I I do have some knowledge of veterans that have contacted me, but these ones have specific disability and they may have been discharged um, for post-traumatic stress disorder, et cetera, which may be affecting whether or not they could get their their firearms license. So I, I think it's, it's a very unique situation and um, it would be very specific to the individuals. And I, I think I would need to speak to a few more of them to I hear collectively what we could do to collectively assist them because uh, yeah, I think it's unique. Yeah. I will pass a word on to them. Like yeah. I say, they've been in contact with me for the past few days when they heard you were going to be on our show. So uh, I thought I'd give them a, a little time and uh, just to voice their concerns. But uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for addressing that anyway, Leslie. And like I say, I'll be in contact with them and let them get in contact with you. That, that would be awesome. I'd Where? love to hear more about yeah. it. Yeah, just to expand on that and, and the issue of veterans and PTSD, what a lot, a lot of veterans find is they want to do the right thing. If they're having challenges, uh, if they have problems, they want to be treated. Okay, and they seek that treatment. But under the current gun control regime, uh, especially in the licensing system, the application, the renewal of the license, if you are being treated for PTSD and you are obligated to report that on the uh, on the application, that's an automatic disqualifier. And that can mean the loss of your property, uh, the loss of employment, uh, the loss of enjoyment of a, a sport, a pastime, a cultural tradition that you enjoy and could contribute contribute to your rehabilitation. So that is the way it's sort of broken down politically now. Veterans are very, very concerned about this and they're being ignored. Well, I, I, love, I can't wait to hear more about it and I look forward to, to meeting with them. Uh, Charles, like you'd like to chime in? One second on that. Uh, Blair, great point and the veterans for sure, but over the last six months, we've, seen it, we've been seeing a disturbing trend and uh, 
there's lawyers out there, I won't mention who they are, but uh, they're, they're telling me now that there's more and more of these mental health issue cases coming before them. So here's an example where somebody, I say there's a domestic and, uh, you know, the police come in and they take the firearms owners' uh, firearms away during the situation. They go to court. If he is exonerated, um, the judge is now telling these people that you can't have your guns back until you get a, a psychiatric assessment and a certificate. Now, here's the rub. And, uh, you know, Blair kind of, uh, you know, you know, mentioned this already. So when you try to go to a, a psychiatrist to get the therapy, they're not going to just see you once and give you a certificate so you can get your guns back. They're, that is not protocol. Okay. But here's the thing. If you go to them for months, then all of a sudden you're receiving therapy for psychiatric treatment. And as Blair said, now you are formally disqualified and you lose your guns because of that. So there's this, this twisted thing that's going on now. You may be found innocent in court, and I, you know anybody who does a, you know, something wrong with uh, their firearms or threatens somebody or you know harms somebody. Of course, they should fit, face the full first full uh, force of the law. But if they are found innocent, things should go back to normal, and that means they get their private property back. That is not happening now. I was just wondering if you could comment on that. I've I've actually had. People contact me um, with that exact situation that you've spoken about, and one of the difficulties is is that we've seen we've seen how doctors protect their license. We we witnessed this in COVID. Like even even I've had uh, people contact me who they could have gotten an exemption, but they their doctor wouldn't give it to them, even though the doctor says, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that, but I can't risk my license. It's the same thing with the psychiatrist and the psychologist. They may see a person as being fit and being able to handle a, a firearm and to own a firearm. However, they do not want to put their name to that because just in case something happens, they don't want their name being associated with it. So that person is in a very, is in a catch 22, a very, very difficult situation because although a psychologist or a psychiatrist may deem them to be fit, they may not want to give them that report saying that. And if they do, you're absolutely right. They would want to have extensive treatment and, and extensive records to demonstrate that if something goes wrong, that they did their due diligence and it's, it's a real problem. And you're absolutely right. Um, it, it seems that what we're doing is we're creating a system that's making it very, very difficult for people to own firearms, which is almost an act of disarmament. Blair, you want to touch on something? Oh, I've got a lot of subjects I want to touch on. <laughs> How much time do we have left? Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, as long as uh, Dr. Lewis is fine, we're, uh, we've got a few more questions. Okay. I think we've touched on a, on a lot of subjects, and I think we've got a, uh, a, a pretty clear indication of where you're coming from on, the, on this issue. Thank you. Um, yeah. 
have have we made ourselves clear on this? I'm I mean it, it it's off, often difficult when dealing with uh, with uh, people in the uh, political world to uh, to know uh, if you've made yourself understood, if they understand where you're coming from, because we've we've dealt with this for years and years and years, and we've gone over these issues a million times before. Uh, but uh, for people who are in the uh, the uh, uh, the political arena in Canada today. Uh, who may have the opportunity to lead and to legislate in this country, uh, it's a very, very important for us uh, that they understand where we're coming from. And I just want to make sure that uh, we've provided that for you. Oh, yes, you've been, you've been very clear. And it's, it's clearly an issue that, you've, that you see as an issue of your rights, your life, your liberty, your security, your um, right to own your property. And these are all things that, that we deal with in the charter. And so everything that you focused on has been really entrenched in, in the law. And you just want the law to be clear. And you want a law that is unambiguous and that firearms owners can be assured that once they are complying and they're doing what the law um, what what the law stipulates, that they are not running afoul. And for that to happen, the law has to be clear. And right now, it's not. And so I think I think you've been very clear on that. Well, thanks. Uh, well, we've been going for about thirty six minutes now, so I think uh, I think uh, we. Uh, got some of our points across and def and Leslin definitely got a few of her points across. Again, I'd like to thank Leslin for coming on NFA talk. Like I say, she's the first one of uh, a few, I hope. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, you know, take the, the uh, share this uh, video with your friends and neighbors and uh, get the word out. We'll see y'all later. Bye. Bye Leslin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great being here. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of NFA Talk. Like and follow the NFA on social media and sign up to become a member.